Good teachers desire that their, their students become lifelong learners. Craftsmen and designers like the ones we read of in the Exodus uh, narrative, Bezalel and Ahileb, who, who were filled with the spirit uh, for craftsmanship, for creating, uh, for designing, creating works in, word, in wood and in uh, precious metals. I'm, I'm sure that they, they were anxious to impart that, that skill and that love of their craft uh, to other people who were similarly gifted. Uh, godly parents teach their children, and, and their goal is not just that they would accumulate a, a few facts uh, that they might use at some point, but, but I think they, they want to encourage their children in, in, in a lifestyle of learning, of learning the discipline of learning, learning. You know, if you've learned to learn, then you can, you can learn any subject. Pastors and teachers in the church, likewise, are, are, are not just to spout out answers for the congregation, but hopefully to encourage you uh, to study and learn yourselves from God's word, to think for yourselves, in fact. Uh, anyone who excels in an art or a skill, whether it's uh, making delicious food, creating beautiful things, uh, perhaps uh, writing significant uh, words in some literary work, uh, they're going to rejoice to see others learn and to see others becoming lifelong learners. In fact, those who are masters of a craft or skill, as they're teaching someone else, are always learning themselves. That's one of the ways that they teach that, that art of learning. We, we, we realize that to, to cease to learn in many ways is to, is to lose an essential joy of life something that, is, that gives meaning and, and purpose to our lives. It's to exist in a, a passive, unchanging state, merely going from day to day. Uh, we, we grieve when we see people enter that kind of a state because of disease. Uh, but how much more tragic it is when people who are otherwise healthy have fallen into that state of losing any desire to learn in a, in a real sense. And certainly learning is a vital aspect of following Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a learner. In fact, that word disciple that we read in scripture could be translated student. Okay, when you become a disciple of Christ, you become a learner of his. Uh, that term following Christ, in fact, implies movement, doesn't it? It implies the, the idea of following a particular path, or we use the, we read the metaphor in scripture of growing in Christ, which again, again conveys that idea of, of development and, and producing fruit, or take the images of putting off one's old way of life, uh, like an old suit of clothes, and putting on a new way of life, like, like new clothing. These two convey an, an ongoing process. And, and, and since as followers of Christ, we're, we're heading for Christ's likeness, since the scripture promises that we will be like him in glory, 
then, then obviously that progress that we experience as believers is to be a lifelong progress. We never stop growing in Christ until we're, we're in his presence. Uh, so I say all that to ask you the question, are you enjoying that kind of growth and understanding? Uh, could someone characterize your life as learning, as growing in Christ? Now, there, there are a lot of obstacles to that, aren't there? Your own sinful self resists that, okay? Because it's easier for uh, yourself to just continue in the same old ruts of thinking and behaving the same old way. There are worldly influences that tempt you to settle for, for amusing and entertaining yourself in a life that's really focused just on satisfaction and pleasure in the present moment. And certainly, that enemy of us all, that great accuser, the devil, encourages you to an independence and an autonomy that trust in your wisdom rather than humbling humbly seeking to learn from others. So you've got these three big enemies that we looked at some last Lord's Day to seek to discourage your genuine growth and understanding, and that's because they, they hate you, and they hate the God who created you in his image. And, and so you have to do war against them. They're, they're very satisfied when you slip into a state of self-righteousness. When you start thinking, well, I've, I've sort of arrived spiritually. I don't really have to grow anymore. They're equally satisfied when you've reduced the Christian life to just following a set of rules. Because if you've reduced following Christ to just a set of rules, there's no more learning to be done. You just, you just obey the rules you've come up with. And these enemies are pleased as well if you give up this struggle, because it's a struggle at times to grow, just because it seems to be too much and you just feel like throwing in the towel. You, you failed one too many times. You, you just want to give up. They're happy with that too. Uh, so, so they say growth should be easy. And if you're finding it difficult, then uh, you must be a hopeless case. Now, don't let any of those enemies or any of those ways of thinking rob you of the tremendous joy that is to be found in growing and learning Christ, as the scripture talks to us about. And in our text this morning from 1 John chapter 5, the apostle is encouraging us to growth and understanding, and he's pointing us to both the source and the goal of all true understanding. So let's Turn in God's word to 1 John chapter 5. Again, I'm going to read this uh, last little section here, but we'll be focusing on just one verse. So I'm going to read verses 18 through 21, and we'll, we'll focus in for learning on verse 20. Let's hear then again God's word to us this day. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So in verse 20, we see again for the third time in these last thoughts that the apostle is giving us in this epistle, he, he uses, he speaks in the first person plural of knowledge that is possessed by every person who has heard and responded to the good news. He's putting himself right in this, we know. You see that in verses 18, 19, and 20. The specific knowledge in verse 20, you'll notice, begins and ends with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So that's where our, our thoughts are going to begin, and that's where our thoughts are going to take us. And of course, it's not surprising that John has this focus here, because the focus at the very beginning of his epistle was on Jesus as the word of life, the eternal life that Jesus embodied in human form. So we know in verse 20, what do we know? We know, first of all, that the Son of God has come. Uh, now, let's not rush on. Let's, let's think about just that verb for a moment, because there is a world of significant meaning here, I think. What does it mean for the, that the Son of God has come? Well, for one reason, or for one thing, the use of this verb to come signifies that, that Jesus is not of this material existence, that he had being outside of time and space and came into this world. Now, you and I as human beings trace our being back in unbroken existence to that instant when we were conceived. But that's not the case with Jesus, is it? Uh, Jesus is, has being from eternity. And so he is be, in being in perfect love with the rest of the Trinity and out of eternal union and fellowship with the Father and Spirit, then the God's Son has come, John says. To say that he has come also means that there, there was a specific time and place where Jesus came. At precisely the right time, God the Son entered human history. His human body conceived in the womb of Mary, and before he was born, his purpose in coming was revealed in the name that he was given, Jesus, Yahweh saves. It was for the salvation of his people that he has come. So he had eternal being, and he came at a particular time and place in history, human history. And in fact, when uh, John says that the Son of God has come, that fact of history, we could say, is the fact of history. That the, the reality in human history that gives meaning to everything else. Just think about it for a moment. If the Son of God had not come, all... All of the material world will simply wind down into oblivion, and the entire human race would have just perished. So, so the fact that Jesus has come imparts meaning 
to this temporary existence that we know as human history. Every event, every happening in time and space, if it is to have any eternal significance, is to be comprehended in the light of the fact that God the Son came, has come. Now, this is why uh, we might parenthetically note that the, the teaching that Jesus is the Son of God is opposed by all other religions. They realize instinctively that this is central. And so they deny this doctrine of the incarnation. If you admit that Jesus is the Son of God, then that inevitably leads to your having to face the fact that you are personally accountable to him as God and that he has to be the object of your faith. So the world in rebellion against God, your own sinful human nature, and all the forces of evil fight against this truth that John is saying we know. We have a firm grip on it in our minds and hearts. It's a vain defense for others to resist the fact of the incarnation because it is absolutely true, John says. It's affirmed, of course, other, other places in Scripture. We could look at a number of those places, like Psalm 110 or Daniel 7 or even the first chapter of John's Gospel. But let's go on to think about the implications of that now. The second affirmation that he makes, after he says we know the Son of God has come, is that he has given us understanding. See that in our text? The Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Notice the perfect tense there that communicates the idea of an action that's completed. It's happened, but it has ongoing significance. It's not just sort of done and, and then has nothing to do with us. No, there's an ongoing significance that we want to notice here. And notice too the wording here that the King James and New King James say, he has given us an understanding. Now, the indefinite article, well, the Greek doesn't have an indefinite article, so it's not, not there in the original. And Plus, if we read it, an understanding, there's the idea that, well, it's one understanding among a whole bunch of understandings. And that's not what John's getting across here. He, he's saying that there is, there is understanding that God gives through Christ that changes everything, changes all that we understand. And so we probably should retain the reading that I've used here, has given us understanding. Now notice the implication of that. The implication is that you didn't have this understanding before Christ gave it to you, right? You lacked understanding outside of this gift. Any understanding that we had outside of Christ, really wasn't understanding at all. It was, in fact, ignorance. This is what Paul points out to the Ephesian church when he reminds them of their former state in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to what he says in verses 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's the way you used to be, he says. They are darkened in their understanding. Their understanding is like darkness. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They lack understanding due to their hardness of heart. They become callous 
and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice that, that Paul says here, no longer walk. Walk here, of course, is a metaphor for the way that we live. This was your former way of living, he says. That former way of living reflected the futility, the emptiness of your thinking. In effect, your lack of understanding, your futility of thinking led to a futile lifestyle one that was empty and, and, and worthless. Without the understanding that God gives, what understanding a person has is like darkness, he says. It's in fact ignorance that arises out of a hard heart, one that lacks true love of God and is callous toward God. In this state, then, it's no wonder that Paul says a life is lived is characterized, as he says here in Ephesians 4, by giving yourself up to sensuality. In other words, you just fall back on doing whatever your senses tell you is right, is good. You become, in fact, he says, greedy. We, you long to practice every kind of impurity. The baseness of your senses is what you're satisfying. And, of course, the result of that can only be the death and hell that sin deserves. So that, then, is the hopeless condition that human beings are in. When the Son of God has come and given, then, understanding to them. And what a marvelous and wonderful gift that is, isn't it? It's an understanding so that we have knowledge that we could never have discovered on our own. Right? There's no way for us to have gained this understanding, except God gave it to us by his grace. It's a knowledge beyond anything that the world can give. The world can't give this kind of understanding. In fact, it's a knowledge that we could only have through the gift of understanding from the Son of God himself. For he has given us understanding, go on in the verse now, so that we may know God. Do you see that in the text? He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. This knowledge is, is not just a knowledge about this life, which is passing away so quickly. We can't slow the passage of time down. But this knowledge is of infinite value because it is a knowledge that concerns God. It brings us, in fact, into personal relationship with the true God. You see that personal relationship aspect to what John is saying here? He has given us understanding so that we may know him. He, he's not talking about just some facts about God. He's saying you have come to know God. It's a personal relationship. It's interesting that John is inspired to identify God here with this particular title, isn't it? Him who is true. Consider for a moment how consistently the human understanding Paul was talking about in Ephesians 4 falls short of truth. You know, how fallible, how mistaken our 
human understanding can be. Untrue and vain understanding is even now inflicting untold sorrow and suffering in this world. Think of the war going on that's afflicting the people of Ukraine and Russia. It's, it's a product, isn't it, of, of untruth. It's a product of lies and falsehood. And you could, you could explain, you know, all of human suffering ultimately by that, by that idea, couldn't you? That it is a wandering away from the truth of God that leads only in the direction of pain and sorrow. I mean, consider how, how often, you know, you've experienced that in your own life. You've sinned against someone else or they've sinned against you. And it's been rooted in an untruth that has brought suffering and a false understanding that has brought pain. Now, out of that state then, John says, we have been brought. Okay? We no longer have to think and live in a slavery to false understanding. We're not back where Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. And why is it? Because the Son of God has given us understanding so that we know the one who is true. When you know the one who is true, then you're freed from all the lies that you tell yourself, that others tell you, the lies of the devil. To know the one of true, who is true is, of course, to know the truth. And to know the truth is to be freed from that which is untrue. This is what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 8 when he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, it's ironic, of course, that those to whom he speaks says, Well, we're not anybody's slaves. Uh, when their own actions are revealing that they are slaves to the false understanding that sin is. But, but let's focus on what he says here. What does it mean to abide in his word, to live in his word? Well, it's to believe his word, right? It, which is to place your ultimate trust in him alone. If you're living in his word, that means you're trusting what he's saying, which means you trust him. He's calling us then into a faith relationship with him. It's to have that personal relationship with him by faith, living as one who obeys him as your master and teacher. It's to believe Jesus, the Son of God, has in his person and work revealed to you, shown to you, the triune God who is true. The disciples didn't get this before Jesus' death and resurrection. So he speaks to their misunderstanding in John chapter 14. Philip says to him there in the Last Supper setting, uh, if you just show us the Father, show us God, that would be enough for us. And, and perhaps you recall Jesus' reply, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, for the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. How can you not believe, Philip? If you don't want to believe what I'm saying right now, believe the works that you've seen me do that show that I am one 
with the Father. Now, of course, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the, the apostles are able to put all the pieces together and realize, looking back, that God has revealed to them, I mean, Jesus has revealed to them God himself. And so John begins in his gospel, for instance, with, uh, with the words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says in his gospel that, that the signs that, that Jesus did were to manifest his glory. And he says toward the end of the gospel then, to us who read it, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That they understood at last that, that to see God, we look at Jesus. Paul uses that, that imagery of looking at Jesus to, to talk about the change that he has, he has wrought in us. And he, he, he pictures the, the, the state of those who are still wrapped up in the old covenant, who, who, who have not yet seen that Christ reveals God. He, he says that they're like, they're like people with a veil over their face, so they can't see the truth. But he says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, what does he mean there? He means we've seen Christ. Christ has been shown to us. Our minds have been opened to who he is. And he goes on to say that, that that vision, that revealing of Christ, changes us. Because he says we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the another. Do you, do you see the, the comparison he's drawing there, the, the mental picture he's giving you, as, as we see Christ more clearly, we become more like him. We grow in grace then. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That is the Spirit that's working in us, of course. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. And so, the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we know him who is true. No wonder that the gospel is called good news. But the apostle takes us even further into the glories of God's saving work in our text because he says after this, and we are in him who is true. You see how he leads us even further with this? What an astounding thought here. That the holy, holy, holy God, who is love in himself as three persons in one being, this God has brought us into union with his, himself. So we are in him and he is in us. This is an astounding amazing oneness that he's talking about. But we heard him talking about it earlier in the letter, didn't we? Right in the opening paragraph of the, the letter that he wrote, in fact. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's Jesus. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We preached Christ to us, is what he's saying in shorthand. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you may have fellowship, that is, union and communion with us. And indeed, our fellowship, that is, again, our union and communion, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, he goes on to say, so that our joy may be complete. A joy complete indeed. Joy surpassing any possible earthly joy. Joy beyond your most extravagant wishes for joy in this life. In fact, joy that is to you in your present state unimaginable. You can't even put your mind around this kind of joy, this deep joy, joy that is all satisfying, joy that is never ending, joy that is never diminishing, but always growing, always deepening, always and forever more joyful. That is the joy that comes from being in the one who is true. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful truth to think on? Well, how is this possible? Well, John tells us in the next phrase in our text. Look again at verse 20. In his Son, Jesus Christ, this one who is the true God and eternal life. The human race, our understanding darkened by our sin. Remember Ephesians 4? Estranged from God. We were hopelessly condemned to the wrath of God against sin. To reconcile ourselves with God was impossible. What could we do to take away any one of our sins? What could we do to make ourselves righteous in any way? Nothing. Reconciliation, this union and communion between God who is holy and human beings who are sinful is only possible through his will, and work. And we can sum this up briefly in incarnation, imputation, and indwelling. The incarnation. God in the person of the Son became fully human while remaining fully God so that he might make full atonement for the sins of his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's incarnation. Through imputation, God imputed or counted or accounted the sins of those whom he chose in Christ to the account of Christ. And he imputed or accounted the righteous obedience of Christ to the account of those who are in him. God applies this work of salvation to all those who are in Christ through the indwelling spirit is the spirit that makes this real in your life. He is the one who breathed life into you when you were dead in sin and awakened you to repentance and faith in Christ. And his indwelling spirit, by the way, will see that you persevere to the end, will sustain you in repentance and faith until you're brought into glory. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 
Paul talks about that change. You might go back and read uh, verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, uh, that picture the saving work of God. But I want to just focus your attention for a moment in verse 10, because he concludes, after describing what God has done for you in Christ, he says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you catch that? If you have been made alive with the Son of God through faith in him, then you are one of his works. You're a new creation made for good works. That's what he's saying here. Meaning that way of life which glorifies God and enjoys him. In closing, contrast that again with the darkened understanding of unbelief. Contrast that with the understanding from Christ that his followers are given. Again, Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 17. You must no longer walk, that is, live. How? In futility of mind, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorant, hard of heart, callous, given up to sensuality and impurity. Paul says, that's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. In other words, assuming you've come to faith. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's your calling then, as one to whom verse 20 applies, to put off your old self, that self that you had because you were born a sinner, and put on your new self, the new creation that you are in Christ through his spirit. And in fact, perhaps that imagery of putting on and putting off can can help you in in applying this 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 week. Paul goes on to talk about that later in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to the putting off and putting on that he says should characterize our lives. Put away falsehood. Stop telling lies. That makes perfect sense if we're in union with him and his truth. And instead, put on truth speaking. For we are members of one another. You you want to tell the truth to your fellow believers. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Put off anger. Seek reconciliation. Let the thief no longer steal. Stop stealing. Instead, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he has something to give to somebody in need. Stop stealing and start giving, he's saying. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Stop saying things that corrupt yourself and others, that drag yourself and others down. Instead, speak those things that are good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Make your words grace-giving 
words, words that communicate grace, not judgment, to people. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, he says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put away all that stuff and put on, he says, love. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Again, notice how, how we, we return to Christ, okay? And, and we realize that it's in the power of his spirit that we're able to do what we know he wants us to do, to put off that old man and to put on the new man that is in him. Let's pray that God would enable us to do that. Heavenly Father, really, in, in a very real sense, you've done all the work for this. It is you who made atonement for our sin. It is you who have credited us with God's righteousness. It is you who have awakened us to faith. And it is you, Lord, who, through the power of your Spirit, enable us uh, to live lives that please you. Help us to Help us to stop relying on our own strength and to rely upon yours. Uh, to stop trusting in what we think is right all the time and look for the wisdom that comes from you. To, to stop being so defensive and putting ourselves forward and instead lift you up and lift others up as well. Uh, help us to live with grace as grace has been extended to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.